On an autumn day in March of 2017, whilst other girls were watching the latest episode of The Winx Club or taking Snapchat selfies, an 11-year-old girl was fighting for her life from a man she knew from a man who lived just a few houses down from her. The very last words that she would utter to her assailant, God knows. This is Stasha Orens's story. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Let me start by telling you about Stasha. Stasha Arenza was born in Marbury Maternity Hospital at 20 past 2 a.m. on Thursday the 23rd of June 2005. From the moment her mother Sandy laid her eyes on her, she fell in love. When Stasha was around four years old, her father Stanley and her mother had separated. The years went on and as Sandy raised her as a single mother, she saw her many firsts. Her first smile, her first laugh and her first steps, as well as her first day at big girls school. She had been so excited to start grade R. When it was time for her to go to grade 1, she had attended Tafelsuch Primary. During this time, she also grew up in Tafelsuch a neighbourhood within the Mitchells Plain area of Cape Town, around 4.3 square kilometres. Mitchells Plain itself is an area where many coloured families relocated to after District 6 was declared a whites-only area during apartheid, and all the homes of the coloured individuals were destroyed. So, just a quick PSA. For those of you who are not from South Africa, when I use the term coloured, I am referring to an entire race of people. In other parts of the world, this term may be seen as derogatory, however here it is actually a racial group. The area of Mitchell's Plain itself is quite well renowned for its high levels of gangsterism and drug addiction. Violence here is unfortunately a way of life. But besides those who have no regard for human life, there are so many who are working hard, raising families, and just trying to do their utmost best. Stasha grew up in one such family, and she became a kind-hearted girl, with a smile that anyone who knew her remembers to this day. She would later welcome a younger brother to the family, Odin, whom she loved dearly and protected fiercely. They would often share big bear hugs and she would make sure that he left and returned safely via the transport that used to take him to daycare each day. At school, she was known as Little Miss Chatterbox, but she was also always the first one to spread a kind word or pay the teacher a compliment. Her little mannerisms and habits didn't go unnoticed by those around her, and those are the things that they now remember the most. The truth of the matter, 
She was so loved by all of those around her. Her mother had remarried in 2011 and in the years to follow, Sundays became family day where Stasha used to love helping to pack the vehicle and spending the day out with her family. Nearing her teenage years, her love for all things girly grew. She loved makeup and jewelry and of course doing her hair. During this time, she also began to dream about who she wanted to be one day, the things she wanted to achieve. She wanted to be a model or to become famous and be on TV. Sadly, one day she would fulfill that dream, but not in the way that she nor any of her other family members had ever hoped. And so into our narrative enters the man who would change everything. Randy Tango. To be completely honest, there was very little information that was available and that I could actually dig and find out about Randy and his early life. All we do know for sure is that he was well known by Stasha's mom as the two had actually gone to school together. Later on in his life, however, he would end up, I'm assuming, spending time with the wrong groups of people and he ended up with charges of assault, theft, and drug possession. He had also been held in jail for car theft from the period of 2011 to 2016. In October of 2016, he was released on parole. During his life, he would also have multiple inappropriate affairs, with girls as young as 14 years old. It is also alleged that one girl, Stephanie Hendricks, had been in a relationship with him when he was 23 years old. She was 14 years old at the time. During this time, she would later allege that he had raped her. However, they had continued apparently dating and they had actually had a child together. Sounds like a classic case of grooming to me, however, with no further information, it is impossible to tell. But it does appear that young girls were exactly Randy's type, and at the age of 31 years old, he set his sights on Stasha. On the 27th of March 2017, a Monday, Stasha had gone over to a friend's house in Matrosburg Street, Tafelsach, to watch some movies. So from what I could gather, she wasn't at school that day, something to do with her mom sorting out her high school enrollment. As her mother had left the house that day, she had actually passed Randy in the street, who had greeted her on her way out. At around 12pm, the friend who Stasha was with had gone to use the bathroom, and when she had returned, she had found that Stasha was gone. It would later be discovered that a young mentally handicapped boy of around 13 years old had called her outside under the pretense that her mom had called her, and once she had stepped into the street, she was never seen again. At 6pm, the Tafelsuch community launched a panicked search and she was reported missing at the local police station. Before police and the community had even started searching though, Stasha was fighting for her life, just a few doors down from her home, in the home of Randy Tango. He would later confess to not only raping her twice, but also strangling her to death because he feared that she would tell someone about the incident, namely her mother. 
She put up a massive fight, but she was no match for him. As the life drained from her body, she had told him, which he would later confess, you may get away with this, but God knows. After he was done with her, he had wrapped her body in a duvet cover and a sheet, and he had placed it in a wheelie dustbin. Little did he realize, though, that the tremendous fight that Stasha had put up would later aid forensic investigations to help identify him as her killer. It would later also come to light that a volunteer who had taken part in the search party had stated that they had found nothing by the Swat Club sports complex when they had searched the area that very evening. However, after returning to search the soccer field a few hours later, her naked body was found in the early hours of Tuesday morning, just after 2am. Her clothing was found in the vicinity. That very day, Randy Tango, the Arons' neighbor, was taken into custody. The mentally handicapped boy would be the one who actually led police to Stasha's killer. The mother of the boy, however, would later say that her son was being treated like a villain instead of the hero that he was. Stasha's relatives had apparently come to question her son to find out the finer details of what had happened that day. The mother of the boy would finally state that he was so happy he was the star and now the star is falling. He is cross and angry. I was proud of my son but not anymore. That is why people keep quiet about murders, because look how it is changing now. Two days later, on that very Thursday, angry community members, over 300 of them, marched and attempted to burn Randy Tango's residence down. The problem with that? Well, his mother and another relative were still living in the premises at the time. Police spokesperson Captain Lance Goliath had stated that the frantic family members of Randy's had called him for assistance after hundreds of people converged on the house at around 3pm. Randy's mother, however, had immediately protested his innocence and said, My son isn't a racist. The people are standing in front of my door calling him a he is innocent until proven guilty. Police were then dispatched and a little bit of chaos ensued, to say the least. The police had to cordon off roads and ward people off using many different measures. The community was urged to not get involved and take things into their own hands, something that on occasion has been known to happen. What was immediately established was that this case was going to bring many heated debates and hot topics to light, mainly surrounding the issues within the treatment of women and children in the community and surrounds. The very next day, that Friday morning, Randy had accompanied the police to his home to show them the location of where the assault and murder had taken place. On the very first day in court, the case was postponed to April 3rd as legal aid was not available. This is unfortunately not an uncommon occurrence here in South Africa. During these court sessions, Stasha's father, Stanley Godfrey, and her grandmother, Dawn Godfrey, were present, along with Stasha's mother and her family. They did not utter a word during the court session, nor said anything when approached for a comment. 
Along with the family, the court was also full of community members. And there were even more gathered outside along with residents, furious and waiting to catch a glimpse of Randy. At the next court session, Randy shocked all onlookers by declaring that he intended to apply for bail. Community members urged the magistrate to grant bail so that they could finish him off in the street. I think he probably realized that it wasn't the greatest idea for him to be out in the street and the community again, and so in June he abandoned his bail application. After multiple more delays, the case was eventually transferred to the High Court. In November, Randy had entered pre-trial proceedings. The family, throughout all the postponements, remained optimistic that justice, although delayed, would be eventually served. December rolled around and instead of issuing his plea as he was supposed to during that session, he had complained of stomach pains and a headache. He would later go on to state that it was potentially complications from earlier kidney problems, and so he was taken to the Victoria Hospital. He had told the judge, though, just prior to leaving, Ek voel nie lekker nie. My mag is seer, en my kop is seer. Ek voel lam. The judge had responded, Is dit nie die sag nie? Is jy nie sinjou wie achtig nie? Like me, jy wil werkom van die sak, maar alles dit vandag of more of volgende jaar, ons gaan klaar maak. When it came down to it, Randy had no choice but to plead guilty due to copious amounts of forensic evidence found on not only Stasha's clothing, but also the duvet and the sheet. And there was so much of evidence due to the incredible fight that she had put up. During court proceedings, his previous criminal history came to light, as well as his previous encounters with minors. Initially, another girl, Stephanie Hendricks, who was 14 years old at the time, remember I mentioned her a little bit earlier, she had laid a charge of rape against him, but it was withdrawn allegedly without her knowledge. She would, however, go on to have a child with him, and that boy was around eight years old at the time of the court proceedings. I wasn't able to ascertain whether he was or wasn't a part of the child's life. There were also allegedly four other counts from the period of 2008 to 2012. However, the judge would later rule that the witnesses in those counts lacked credibility. Judge Robert Henney would go on to say, This is not to say that the rapes did not happen, but there was not enough evidence for the court to convict the accused. So Randy was found not guilty on the four counts of rape. However, he was found guilty on one count of statutory rape instead. In discussing these previous allegations, the judge had said that the teen who felt pregnant did not tell anyone about the rapes and pregnancy. She had allegedly only told her sister and family when rumors of her and Randy's relationship started circulating. He went on to say that the fact that she went on to have further sexual relations as well as a relationship with Randy after the rape was 
bizarre. He then finalized his statement by saying that the second victim was very unsure of herself. Both victims, however, had testified in court and they both stated that their charges had been allegedly withdrawn without their knowledge. Randy Tango was convicted to 10 years in prison for the statutory rape of Stephanie Hendricks, life imprisonment for each charge of the rape of Stasha Aronsa, and life imprisonment for the murder of Stasha Aronsa. In South Africa, a life sentence is 25 years. His particulars were ordered by the judge to be entered into the Sexual Offenders Registry. The judge would go on to say that Randy led Stasha into the lion's den. She was no match for him. She was petite and fragile and he easily overpowered her. He also described Randy's conduct as cowardly and stated that the court had a responsibility to remove dangerous predators like Randy from society. Randy's lawyer, however, claims that his client was incredibly remorseful. And then Randy wrote a letter or a statement addressed to Stasha, which his lawyer read. I am very sorry for what I did to you. I hope your parents can forgive me for what I did. I know there are no words that can bring you back, but I hope someday in the future they will forgive me. However, the family were just not having it. I mean obviously. In a letter to the court, her mother would later say that the void can't be filled after her daughter's brutal death. Our house is not the same anymore. Her little brother is five years old and he's not the same anymore. Our lives won't be the same anymore. But after we heard that he got what he deserved, we're happy. After the conviction and sentencing was heard, Many organizations spoke up in praise of the police work and ultimately the sentence that was given. They were of the belief that a harsher sentence would send a strong message to perpetrators to refrain from engaging in such heinous crimes. At her funeral, held at the Orion Church in Rocklands, more than 2,000 people attended with more outside on the church grounds. Her tiny white coffin was decorated with a bouquet of roses and she was later laid to rest in Grassy Park. Her murder highlighted the atrocities within the local community, issues that are unfortunately not just contained to Mitchell's Plain. Just months prior, it was Courtney Peters in the media. And just weeks later, it would be Rene Raman, once again amongst others. So let's look deeper. It's no secret that there is a prevalence of crime in South Africa. But perhaps what is not spoken about as much as it should be is that women and children from lower income areas in both Cape Town as well as nationwide are subjected to far more danger than the average person. Now, don't get me twisted, it's not to say that there is no crime in wealthy areas, but rather that the sheer percentage of crime in lower income areas is far higher. Lorraine Botta, a member of the DA, the current ruling party of the Western Cape, said during the period of 2014 to 2015, 200 children were murdered in the Western Cape. 
She said the year after that, 2016, 169 children were killed. And by August 2017, 123 children were killed in the province. The communities have obviously had enough. But even though protests are conducted and noise is made, after a while it dies down. And unfortunately, things don't seem to change. So the question is, why? Firstly, let's look at the culture of violence. Within many of these areas, violence is almost always an everyday part of life. And this violence may not always be physical, but it may also be sexual or even emotional. I have touched on this as well as gang culture within a previous case I covered, the case of Cameron Wilson. So let me break it down for you. The culture of violence theory looks deeper at the patterns of violent behaviors that are ingrained into society or a particular community, as perhaps in this case. The embedded nature of violence that permeates each aspect of the environment potentially leads to violence being more acceptable within the home, either as a means to discipline or control, and in a larger sense outside of the home as a means to get what is desired. And of course, there is an underlying acceptance that this is just a way of life. We have become desensitized as a nation to some of the atrocious acts that are committed. So perhaps now you're like, well, Bella, no one condones the violence in these areas. What are you talking about? Well, you see, that's where you may be mistaken. Yes, a very large portion of people stand against the violence in communities. However, there are so many enablers, family members, and even friends who witness injustices being done and say nothing, or even worse, defend the perpetrators. Now, this could be for one of many reasons. Perhaps fear, perhaps love, or they might just not see the issue. And it's ultimately the combined actions of both the perpetrators as well as those around them that condone their actions that lead to the establishment and the maintenance of an extremely dangerous belief system. There are then beliefs that a perpetrator's actions can continue because either it is just a way of life or they just might not be any consequences. Even though they themselves might know that what they're doing is wrong, like Randy knew, he just thought that he could get away with it. The only way in which things are going to change is if the norms and societal values that support violence are changed too. That, however, is far easier said than done. It is an unfortunate reality that women in South Africa live in fear. March after march, protest after protest, murder after murder. We learn how to protect ourselves. We're told to dress differently. We learn how to exist without drawing too much attention. We learn to adapt. But don't get me wrong, violence against women is not just a South African thing. This type of violence is a worldwide occurrence. So let me hit you with some of the latest statistics. 
In South Africa last year, between July and September of 2021, according to statistics released by the National Police Minister, over 9,500 GBV cases were reported. During that period, 897 women were murdered and there were 9,556 reported rapes. So the stats obviously paint a scary picture. And the scariest part? The perpetrators of these acts might not even stand out to you. Stasha's mother would later say that there were never any alarming signals from Randy and she could never have imagined that he would do what he did. To the average person, children are to be cherished and they represent pure innocence. To some others though, they represent an easy opportunity. So why are children targeted? Well, the first and most logical answer is that they are vulnerable. They are still in the midst of emotional, physical and psychological development. Thus, they are easy targets to perpetrators. In December of 2017, just months after Stasha's murder, the Sardki Bartman Center released some horrific statistics that were compiled using a number of reports. So here it is in a nutshell. The statistics revealed that one in three men said they had committed a sexual offense out of boredom, particularly in the cases with children. It was also discovered that most men began these actions in their teenage years, between the ages of 15 and 19 years old. Half of the men said that they had perpetrated that violence onto girls younger than 15, and they did it as a way to have fun or as part of a game. Half of the men who were engaged in such acts say that they did so with children because of opportunity, as they believed the child would not tell. Unfortunately, as much as we may want to, we cannot blame these actions on a mental disorder in all cases. Yes, there may be a psychological condition to some of the perpetrators in some of the cases, but to just blame all of these actions on ill mental health is taking the responsibility away from the perpetrator. And like I discussed in a previous episode, the Monet Haramza case, it is finding an easy solution to an issue that requires far more introspection. There are so many factors that can actually lead a perpetrator to this point. I won't go into them in detail because that alone is a full episode on its own. But I will mention them briefly. Factors include childhood exposure to sexual abuse, familial abuse and maltreatment, and even, as I mentioned earlier, the culture of violence. The thing is, it all really starts at home and in the immediate environment. However, whilst there are a multitude of factors that can lead to this behavior, it is universally accepted that a massive sphere of it has to do with power and control. A lack of control in one realm may push an individual to gain that control in another. Children lack much control in the sense that they are at the mercy of their parents or their caregivers. They are more vulnerable not only in terms of size, but in terms of development too, as I previously mentioned. 
and it is this vulnerability that is exploited and will unfortunately continue to be as one of the most prevalent issues is that there is very little fear of the criminal justice system. Those who offend often don't hold fear for the consequences of their actions. Sometimes it is because they are let off the hook with a slap on the wrist. And other times they gain more skills and notoriety in prison, like Cameron Wilson for example. That is why when protests are held, punishment for perpetrators with harsher sentences and greater incarceration periods are pushed for. But like I said, there are so many different factors at play here. And just attempting to address one aspect is unfortunately short-sighted and not sufficient to create a lasting or even significant change. Although every time a child is taken too soon, there is a protest or movement, which don't get me wrong, is amazing. Over time, the cases and the victims are spoken about or heard about far less. I mean, just a few years after Stasha's death, yet another young woman's body was discovered in the very same location. When will the violence end? When will the attack on the vulnerable stop? Probably only when the minds, attitudes and beliefs of a community, of a country change. There needs to be more emphasis placed on punitive legal measures for perpetrators. There needs to be more accountability on behalf of all community members. There needs to be a budget increase to assist visible policing. But there also needs to be a strict monitoring of such a program to avoid corruption. There needs to be safety for children to be able to ride their bicycles, play in their gardens, or just walk a few doors down to their friend to watch a movie. There needs to be justice for all of those who lost their lives way too soon. The task at hand seems overwhelming, but at the end of the day, doing something is better than doing nothing at all. Each action, no matter how small, can lead to positive change. The community have rallied together and support one another and the families of the victims at court cases. They provide visibility and they share helpful tips to keep safe in these dangerous times. They brainstorm solutions, but most importantly, they do their very utmost best to ensure that the victims are not forgotten. 11 years may not seem like a very long time, but in those years, Stasha brought such light and love to the world that even today in her absence, she is remembered. And I hope that her voice and all the other voices like hers are never lost or forgotten. Thank you so much for sticking with me through today's episode, which was probably just as hard for me to film as it may have been for you to watch. So until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!